So the topic of my, of my talk today is about the triumph of the willing. And a lot of times in life, and particularly in the Silicon Valley, we hear this notion of, are you comfortable with ambiguity? Are you comfortable going into uncertainty? There's a lot of things you can't control. Are you able to do this? None of that has been my narrative. I've always been uncomfortable with ambiguity. I don't like gray areas. I'm a very binary person. But I've always been willing because the Lord has told me that, Jason, you don't have to be prepared. I will prepare you. Just be willing to follow my lead. Be willing to listen to my call. So a lot of what I'm talking about today in my journey um, is based on that willingness because I don't ever claim to be talented or smart or connected. I just claim to be willing because I know that everything I've done is not by me. It is through me, given to me by him. So I'm thankful. So I just want to let you know the message today is about willingness. Um, if you're a first time visitor to NBCC, you know, we always stand for the reading of the word. So I'm asked that you guys stand. Um, we're going to be reading from the NIV version, Romans uh, 5, 3 through 5. We rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into your hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. Father God, I ask that you remove me. May anything I show not give any glory to myself, Father God. May all honor and praise be to you. May my heart be your heart. May my words be your words. May someone in this audience today receive a message from you that they are capable, they are willing, they are loved, Father God. And with that, we honor you. We lift your name above all. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, so along my journey, I've held a myriad of titles. Um, next slide, please. Uh, but the number one thing that I pride myself on is that I'm a believer. I found God at a very early age. Or I should say he found me. When people say they find God, I have this visual image of playing hide and seek with Jesus. And I, and I was like, hey, I found Jesus. But I mean, so he grabbed me at an early age and, and gave me this sense of urgency on how I use my time, you know, making sure that I'm very efficient with where I place my effort. But more importantly, that I always give glory back to him for everything he's given me. Um, my first true entrepreneurial endeavor was I was what I call a lawn care technician in Chicago. <laughs> um, I used to shovel snow and cut grass. Uh, my parents are here, so they, they know. Uh, I used to shovel snow and cut grass to make money to buy shoes and, and other things. Then I figured out that I had seasonal allergies and I didn't like the cold weather as much, so I employed my friends to do it for me. Uh, <laughs> you had to sell them on a vision. Like, look, this is what we're going to do. You're going to work. I'm going to get some of the profit, but we all win together. And, <laughs> I mean, I don't know if that pitch will work well today, but back then they were sold. It was cheese fries and Air Jordans. That was all we wanted. Uh, the next thing that I did in my career is I was a mover. Uh, mover slash kind of like a, a janitor. I used to clean out storage units at my mother's old job, and I would help people pack up their lives and move. This was probably the most humbling but the most effective job I had ever taken because I was in a position of service. People would travel. People would move. People would relocate because they were either, you know, chasing a dream they had gotten a new job. They had gotten married. They became a widow or a widower. And I would sit and listen to them tell me their story as to why they're moving. We would go through the artifacts of their journey together. And they would explain to me how God had worked in their lives. Now, one of the gentlemen who employed me was an older gentleman named Lou. Lou pretty much had a magical toothpick that never left his mouth because he would talk and it would dangle. And I just watched the toothpick. I'm like, this man's ability to use the, it. Was, it was fascinating. So he was like a superhero with the toothpick. Uh, but, but the journey Lou had in his life, the things that he did, you know, and didn't do, he would pour into me. 
He would tell me, like, Jason, you're a smart kid. You're meant to do something. Jason, you're going to be somebody. Jason, you're going places. And here it is, you know, I'm a 17, 18, 19-year-old kid listening to this older gentleman. I didn't believe half the things he was telling me to be true. But going through people's stuff, you know, is the hardest thing. When you see a person looking at pictures as they pack up because they're forced to move, then you realize the, the temporal nature of life. You realize that we're just living in a vapor. You realize that God is in control. And so my next job, which is interesting, um, is I was a barber considering that I'm bald. Uh, <laughs> and the reason I got into being a barber was not because I actually wanted to cut hair. It was because I needed to provide um, an economic vehicle to survive undergrad. Um, I went to school at CCS in Detroit, which is at that time, it was an art school that was regarded as the Harvard of art schools. And then you had, oh, that's my baby girl, that's my niece. <laughs> uh, and then you had Stan, excuse me, uh, Art Center, which was regarded as the Stanford Art Schools. Now, what's interesting about me cutting hair is that my best friend back home, Lasaro, is a prolific barber. I mean, it's his way of helping people feel good about themselves. So he told me we had a very strict conversation. He's like, how are you going to make money, man? How are you going to take care of yourself? I had to humble myself and say, look, bro, I don't know. Could you teach me how to cut hair? So he reluctantly taught me because he thought I would come back and we would be competitive barbers. But I'm like, I just need to eat. I need to pay my phone bill. And then I became bald. So I became jealous of the people who had hair. And, no, I'm just kidding. No, but it, it was a great opportunity to serve, you know, my dorm mates, to be involved in conversations. Because when, you're, when you have someone in a barber chair, you can capture them for a moment. You can pour into them. And that became my way to relate to people and learn from people. I cut people's hair from Serbia, from people who were, you know, coming from the Middle East to people who came from Southeast Asia. So I was able to really understand what they were at art school for, why that journey brought them there. And in that moment, I would slowly minister to them about the power of belief, the power of seeing yourself achieve and then going after it. My next job um, after that was I was an intern at Nike in 2000, 2001. Uh, what was crazy about that is I was Nike's first African-American design intern. I just assumed that because every athlete was a person of color, that the people who created the product were also people of color. <laughs> I didn't know. Um, and I also didn't know anything about Oregon beyond Oregon Trail, which is the video game I played in the 80s. Um, I knew that a lot of people came there on covered wagons, and the majority were lost to famine. And I'm like, I, I was like, I didn't, I didn't know what famine was, but I knew it was something I needed to avoid. Uh, it just sounded bad. Like, all my cattle's gone, everything's happening, the wheel broke on a wagon. Uh, it was a traumatic experience to say I'm moving to Oregon, because that was my image. Um, but when I got there, I did everything that they told me to do because it wasn't in the, the big moments where I showed up. It was in a small task where I poured my soul into the craft. And so my first job was actually them hazing me. They told me to design shoelaces. Now, everybody in here probably has a pair of shoes. Shoelaces are not what you buy a shoe for. That is the most unattractive portion of the shoe. That was my job. They were like, design shoelaces. So I thought it was a serious task. I spent about a month and a half designing a thousand different ways to tie your shoe, to close the shoe, a shroud, a strap, and I ended up getting several patents. And when they came back to ask me what I had been working on, I showed them the shoelace project. They were like, are you serious? You've been doing this for a month? I was like, this is my job. I take my job seriously, you know? Um, I, I wanted to earn my way into Nike, and that was my way in. What was funny about that is they had intended to haze me. There was a bigger project they wanted me to do. But because I took the time to care about the small things, it was easy for them to give me the bigger things. And what was amazing in that moment, people made fun of me, but that's how I ended up meeting Mr. Knight. He had heard about this crazy intern that designed like a thousand different ways to lace your shoe. And, you know, it's, a, it's quite fun. I mean, I did it to my intern, so I, <laughs> you know, hey, you got to pay, pay it for it. Uh, but, you know, he, what he really 
understood was that my work ethic and my intentionality was pure. I did not want to waste my moment. I didn't want to waste the opportunity God gave me. So I climbed to the top. I became an executive. Um, I ran design for Jordan Brand, which was my dream as a kid. Um, growing up, you know, I fell in love with design because of comic books, um, graphic novels as they call them today. My first introduction to design was a gentleman named Lucius Fox. And if you read Batman, Lucius Fox is Batman's gadget guy. And it was amazing because to me, Michael Jordan was Batman, and if Lucius Fox can do things for Batman, then I could do things for Michael Jordan. Now, I don't know how I made that, <laughs> that connection in my brain as a seven to eight to nine-year-old kid, but it was clear, like, I'm going to be there, I'm going to be like Lucius Fox. Um, but then after I left, I became a designer in residence at Excel Partners, you know, and I'll talk more about my journey and into how that happened, um, where I'm able to now pour into other people through the lens of a program I call Cultural Alchemist. And what we look for are polymaths. People who don't fit neatly into a box, people who feel like they're a little bit on the outside of what, you know, technology and entrepreneurship and design say is the appropriate archetype for who we could become. I look for those people who are willing to give up on themselves because they don't fit neatly into a category. Because if you think about the story of Christ, here's a man that didn't fit neatly into any category. And if the world didn't recognize his greatness, those people who follow him did. So I want to serve people by recognizing those small moments of brilliance to let them know you don't have to fit neatly into a box because God has it organized for you to fit neatly into his plan. Then after that, I became a founder of a company. Um, I've talked for years about starting my own stuff. I've joined companies. I've started things. But uh, I'm in a very blessed position to work with my friends and my family to build something that is dedicated to the empowerment of the youth. Um, but above all that, the most important things beyond being a believer is being a husband and a father. Because, you know, my family is like, that's what I do everything for. And it's interesting to me because I look at my children who are here in the front row, and I thank my wife every day because they have my energy. And they never sleep. And so, <laughs> and so I thank my wife because she's a saint in that regard, you know, because she has three versions of me to deal with. Uh, but it's crazy because my kids, you know, they'll be up reading the Bible. And I'm like, it's 2 in the morning. You should be asleep. But, man, they're reading the word, so it's kind of like, I don't know if it's a strategic chess move <laughs> on their behalf, and then they flip the Bible into something else. Uh, but, 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 but what I love is their energy, their curiosity, you know, their passion to want to, you know, stay up and feed their minds and feed their spirits. So, you know, those are the two things that I hold near and dear to my heart, because with every endeavor, um, I use the analogy that my family are not passengers on my journey, you know. They're co-pilots, so I navigate with them in mind. I don't make decisions that... Don't include them. Everything I do is for them, and everything is under the banner of God first. Next slide, please. Uh, but it all started with this gentleman, Michael Jordan. And another rumor is that he makes everyone who works for him shave his head. Not true. It just happens to be that genetically I was predisposed to being bald. If you look at my family, all of them have long, luscious hair. It skipped the generation, I guess. I don't know what happened, but it's okay. I'm aerodynamic. Uh, you got to turn a weakness into a strength. Uh, and so one of the things that Michael would always tell me, you know, when we would sit in business meetings and things that he said on the court was this next quote. Next slide, please. Is I can accept failure, but I can't accept not trying. And when we would do our product reviews, Michael would tell me, like, did you try your best? Did you try your best? Is this your best effort? Are you trying your best? Because what he was telling me is that, Jason, it's OK if you make a mistake because you can learn. But if you don't ever try, how will you grow? And so when we talk about winners and losers, there's no such thing as losing. It's winning and learning. And so because I was willing to put myself out there and try things that were, you know, not typical to how the shoes were designed, to how business was being handled at Nike, to how people navigated their career, I was able to fail forward. I learned by trying, not by observation, but by trying. I wasn't afraid to put myself out there. And because I tried, 
I ended up, next slide please, working with athletes like Russell Westbrook, who tries every time he touches the ball to get a triple-double, which is fascinating to me. Um, that man attacks the rim with so much energy. It's, I, I get tired watching the game. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. Um, Next slide, please. Another person I had a great opportunity to build a friendship with and relationship with um, is my brother in Christ, Chris Paul. He's a phenomenal athlete. He's someone that I respect and admire, um, and he's someone that honors God in a way that is unprecedented, you know, in a world that is supposedly driven by money and greed. This man stands on, stands on his faith, and I've seen him stand on his faith, not, not in public, but in private, where people can easily slip can easily do the things that go against their personal outward brand. This man makes decisions to stand on his faith and say, no, this isn't aligned with God's plan for me. Uh, another athlete that I had a chance to work with is Carmelo Anthony. Despite his lack of defense, you know, <laughs> it's just true. I still love him. Uh, he's always on the offense when it comes to investing and looking for opportunities that pour into the inner city. This man has dedicated his life to the advancement of the arts, something that is near and dear to my heart because creativity became my jump shot, became my way out. You know, I wasn't a person that was going to go to the league, so I turned design and creativity into my league, and I wanted to be the Michael of my craft. Um, next slide, please. Another person I had a great opportunity to meet while I was at Nike is a gentleman by the name of Brian Barr. He and I became good friends. Um, he ended up going to Stanford Business School, where I also attended, and I didn't know at the time who Brian was. He was just a gentleman that, you know, I met on a basketball court. He was a jump shooter. I was a post player, so it was a match made in heaven. You know, we was like peanut butter and jelly, shake and bake. We just, <laughs> whatever you want to call it, we just never really competed against each other. We just always played well with each other on the court at work. And, um, and Brian is, was Steph Curry's teammate and best friend. So when I moved to the Bay Area, um, me and Brian reconnected and he was in grad school and we ended up working on a company together and, and we formed it uh, a couple years ago and they're, they're off and running. Um, during that time period, I also reconnected, next slide please, with a gentleman that I worked with when I first got to Jordan, which is Andre Ward, who's also a local of the Bay, uh, Bay Area. What's amazing about Dre is that he's another person that's a warrior of the light. God has surrounded me with these mighty men of courage that have challenged me to use my position of influence to support not only my own desires and needs, but the needs of God, to make sure that no matter what room I'm in, no matter where I go, no matter where I travel, that he goes before me and he clears a path. So this man puts his body on the line every single time he steps into the ring. And the first thing he does is thank God. And so for me, when you're that strong, you're that courageous, you have to humble yourself and realize that nothing is happening by you. It's happening through you. And Dre always does that. So he calls himself SOG, son of God, because he wants to remember that he's not in control. It's God that works with him and through him for him to go into the ring and defeat his foe mightily. Another friend of mine um, who's a... Uh, in this image right here, it's his birthday today, along with my grandmother's birthday. My grandmother prophesied that I would be speaking. I didn't realize I'd be speaking on her birthday, which is crazy. So her and God obviously have a direct line to each other. <laughs> and she set that up, you know, very well. Um, and, and what's funny about Bryce is he plays for the Dallas Cowboys. He's a believer. And, you know, um, unfortunately, they lost in the playoffs. And we talked about it and we prayed. And I said, oh, man, God is for you guys next season. But I have a bunch of friends who play in the NFL. And I tell all of them that. <laughs> Because, you know, God is on everybody's team, but on the phone call, it feels good because I'm like, Bryce, man, God is for you next season. Calm down. And then I talk to my friend from the Raiders. Man, calm down. God is for you next season. <laughs> you know, so, you know, because God is, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't pick a side. You know, he's for everyone. Yeah. And so that's a blessing. But, you know, uh, next slide, please. But one of the things that I've learned very early is that you have to identify your dream. Sometimes, you know, your dreams aren't really clear. You know, it's not a clear destination. It's not a loud war, roar. It's a gentle whisper. It's that little nudge, that little thing in your gut that's telling you, I should go left instead of going right. I should call that person instead of emailing them. I should go and talk to that person at the front desk. 
Don't ignore that. That's God's whisper. That's God's gentle whisper compelling you to move forward. So for me, it came through the lens of suffering. So many people are afraid to suffer. They're afraid to go through something because they think that they'll, they, they won't endure. But where I come from on the south side, we say we may bend, but we'll never break. So you have to be willing to endure to get the prize at the end of the race. So for me, that started at the age of seven. Next slide, please. And so if anybody had any doubts of the existence of my hair, there's exhibit A. <laughs> I had it at one point. It was glorious. Uh, we had a lot of adventures together. <laughs> we had a magnificent journey together. It was wonderful. Uh, but right after this picture was taken, um, I, I had, you know, my parents had, had, you know, rushed me to a series of doctors to figure out what was wrong with me because I had developed um, uh, an infection called septicemia, which is a blood disease or a blood infection. And several different doctors, several different hospitals couldn't figure out what was going on. We eventually got to the right hospital. They called my pediatrician, Dr. Armin, and he had them run a series of tests. Bless you. Um, everyone sneezed in every service, so I hope y'all not allergic to me. No, it's good. Uh, my grandma is proud, by the way. She always like, you better bless people when they sneeze, so that's for granny. Uh, and so, you know, they had figured out what was going on with me. And while I was sitting there and I'm listening to people, you know, talk about, you know, the, the likelihood of my survival, what was happening, and that this thing was taking over my body, in the back of my mind, all I wanted was an ice-cold Pepsi. That was it. And it was Pepsi-free, to be exact. And I would sit there and I would press this little button every night to try to get free Pepsis. And I illustrate that point because, you know, at a moment where my parents are worried, my uncle is worried, people are coming in and out, figuring out what's going on with me. I'm hooked up to tubes. All I wanted was this simple pleasure, this simple joy. And I asked God to provide it for me. Now, it may sound foolish to pray for the small things, but if you remember that earlier story, it's in the small places where God does his biggest work. So that little request, you know, for me to get that Pepsi wasn't me trying to hydrate myself. It was because I refused to believe that my life was over. I was like, no, I just want a Pepsi. Things are going to be okay. And I met kids who were terminally ill. I played with kids who were critically injured. I met kids who were coming out of chemotherapy. And I realized at that moment that imagination and creativity is the thing that binds us together. So it became my pursuit to use my art, to use my voice, to get from where I was at to go where God commanded me to be. And along the way, next slide, please. I would do sketches. Um, this is a sketch of my older brother. He was the coolest guy in school, and he's in, he's in the row today. See, I'm going to look at him. He's going to start crying. I'm going to start crying. So I'm just going to look straight down the line. <laughs> and uh, it was cool because, you know, in the back of my drawing, I would always put little things with Jordan. I would always say MJ23. I didn't know how I was going to get there. I didn't know how I was going to get there, but I knew that it was a real place. And I knew as long as I made it real, then I can be there. As long as I gave it a date, Instead of just a hope, then it will become a goal, just not a dream. And so I gave myself a goal, and I kept pursuing, and I, I kept it present. And what was interesting, me and my brother would sit up, and I would sketch him, and I would, you know, look up to him and admire him. And meanwhile, I'm the middle child. I had my younger sister, who also, uh, she's here today, and she also had her dream to be in theater. But her form of play was to convince me to drink a cup full of dirt water and tell me it was cappuccino. <laughs> now, I just told you I got out the hospital for being sick. <laughs> And here it is, I'm pouring into her, and she's trying to poison me with dirt water. But the whole point was that I engaged in her dream. I allowed her to visualize herself as being an actress and being a performer. And so today, she's a performer. Today, my brother's in music. And it's a blessing because all of us have been given this gift of creativity because of my parents and their gift of being together for 45 years. So... Next slide, please. Um, and what's interesting is this ad came out, and you see there's a 1-800 number on the bottom, so you know what I did. I called it. 
Uh, <laughs> I called repeatedly. I mean, I called anybody that was associated with Nike. I would obsess over figuring out how can I get in? Because once you gave me that phone number, you just gave me permission to pursue you and pursue you fervently. Uh, <laughs> like, and, and so what ended up happening is this number was pre-recorded with Michael's voice. And I'm like, OK, it's not him. Then I figured out there has to be another way. And so I flipped over the shoebox and there was a 1-800 number on the back. Lo and behold, it was the customer service number. Now, they've since removed it because of me. Uh, <laughs> so if anybody wants to try, it's no longer there. I've checked. Uh, and I would write letters, and I would call, and I would pursue these people and tell them, I will work there one day. I will design Air Jordans. And they're like, kid, you're 12. Why are you bothering me? But I had to make my dream a goal. I told y'all, when you give a dream a deadline, it becomes a goal. So get up out of dreaming and be more purposeful and more insightful with your effort, and then you can get to where you're going. Um, I would tell everybody about my dream, and then it eventually happened, where I became, as I mentioned earlier, uh, one of the first design interns for Jordan Brand, the first, and then the first African-American design intern. Next slide, please. Uh, but in order for me to grow into that moment, I had to leave my comfort zone, and it was about perseverance. When I decided that this was my journey, I had told everyone in my crew, I'm a designer Jordans, I'm getting out of Chicago, and I'll see you guys on the shelf someday. People would tell me, oh, that's crazy. People like us never make it. People like us can't do that. I've had teachers tell me, you know, kids like you don't end up in, in CCS. You end up dead or in jail. And these are people who've never even had a conversation with me. They never looked at my grades. They never looked at my portfolio. They just assumed because I, I, I wore hand-me-down clothes and I didn't look like the rest of my classmates and I was quiet that I wasn't meant for much. But God uses the smallest of us to do the biggest things, like I keep saying. So in that moment, I refused to listen to what they were telling me. And I knew that God was inside of me, pulling me, pulling me forward. So I didn't sit there and feel sorry for myself. I felt motivated because I wasn't going to prove anything to them. I was proving that God is real. So if you go to the next slide, that's me on, a, on, a, on my left, your right. So that shirt with the, the word Mac on it, that was a brand back in the day. Um, I look younger today than I did back then, which is crazy. Um, I was in a bad place. You know, I gave up on myself. That little voice of doubt, that little seed of doubt that was planted in my spirit began to take root. And I started to make decisions that were against the word of God. I knew that I had something inside of me great, but I didn't believe that I would achieve it because so many people around me started to tell me that it wasn't possible. So I was in a constant conflict with myself and with the world as to who I could become and what I could do. But I refused to listen. And even though I was scared, even though I was fearful, I was willing. And so when people talk about how do you do so much, I look at my year as a budget. You get 365 days. And if every day you take a step towards what God is telling you to do, you look back, you got 365 steps closer to your goal. So I didn't waste any of my time. I read everything I could read. I drew every day. Art became my sport. I tried to go to Foot Locker. My brother worked there. I would ask him a million questions about the shoes and the boxes and the technology because I became a student of the game. I pursued my craft because God was compelling me to pursue it. Next slide, please. But what was interesting is, um, you know, during that moment in my life, like I mentioned, you know, there was a battle. And this scripture really spoke to me. It was Romans 5, uh, excuse me, 8, 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that be, will be revealed in us. And so young people in the room, when you're told that you're not going to be much, when you turn on the news and the world seems like it's in shambles, when you feel like what can you do to contribute, all you have to do is be willing to be used. That is it. Pray to God that he uses your gifts, that he uses your suffering. He uses your moment to amplify his potential and presence in the world. Don't pray to be popular. Pray to be impactful. Don't pray to be rich. Pray to be wealthy in spirit, whole in your mind, complete in the way that you walk and mighty in your steps.
Next slide, please. So for me, I knew that Nike was a real place. This image was, it was originally on their corporate website, and I had to track down a version of it that was similar. So I used to paste this on my ceiling for my, in my undergrad. So when I woke up in the morning, that was the first thing I saw. I went to bed at night, that was the first thing I, went, I saw before I closed my eyes. Because I needed to tell myself that this is a real place. This ain't a magical place. This isn't fairy tale land. That's a real place. And I can be there because you know what? If I believe it can happen and God is going to make it happen for me, I just have to be willing to trust the process. So everything I did was trusting him. I turned down opportunities to study overseas because I wanted an internship. I went into the hardest degree program at CCS after being told I wasn't good enough to be in industrial design. My parents were there in the admissions office. I negotiated my way in. The one thing about Chicago is we know how to mouth hustle. We will talk our way in <laughs> to any place we want to be. Um, so I told the admissions director, you know what? What I'll do is I'll join this major on probation. I'll minor in graphic design. If I fail, I can switch to graphics. So I got into the program. They put me in. The first year wasn't so great, but I survived. Second year, in between, I gave myself um, a task. I wanted to turn you know, creativity into my sport. I read that Michael Jordan did 1,000 jump shots a day, so I put up 1,000 sketches a day. I read every book possible. I took the train downtown to the Art Institute. I read every book in their archive because I wanted to study the craft of design. I needed to catch up with my peers, and I needed to humble myself and let myself know that I am not at their level, but I will be one day if I'm just willing to put myself through this, this, this regimen of studying. Um, so I ended up graduating at the top of my class after being admitted on probation, which was crazy. Which was crazy. Um, and so when I got my internship, you know, um, the whole school was shocked because here it is, this kid that created his own major in a school that is predominantly driven through automotive design. I wanted to draw shoes because I figured at some point gas prices would be too high. <laughs> and I was like, man, listen, everybody has feet. That's something that can't go away. So, <laughs> so I, I'm more, I'm, I was kind of practical with my career approach. Um, but when I got to Nike, uh, next slide, please. Same thing happened as the, as the, as the internship experience. You know, I was given a task that everyone made fun of. They were like, design this shoe. And the business section was, at that time was called cross-training, and the vertical was called white leather business. And what that means is $40 to $50 shoes that go straight to Sears and JCPenney. Um, it's, the, it's, it's kind of like an afterthought in a, in a creative sense. There's, there wasn't a lot of energy put into these projects. But I knew that this was my shot. So I took this small task, and I wanted to do something big with it. Now, mind you, when I got back to Nike, you know, I was like, I'm top of my class. I'm the man. I'm expecting, like, dinner and brunch with the CEO and... The Air Jordan, not at all. They set me down. They told me this is the project, and they let me be. Um, but I poured my heart and soul into this. I gave this shoe a purpose. This shoe is called the Monarch. Um, and the consumer for this was, a, was people that I had met along my way. You know, it was the, the guy who rides the lawnmower and cuts his grass. The gentleman who tucks in his shirt and his jeans, his T-shirt and his jeans. They prefer Dunkin' Donuts over Starbucks. You know, <laughs> very simple stuff. You know, it's my fifth grade teacher, Mr. Fiegel, who would drive from Indiana two hours to show inner city kids, you know, nature and wildlife. It's the football coach that, that's always your biggest advocate. It's the grandfather on the front row cheering loudly for his granddaughter when she performs. It's that guy that's the unsung hero that's the bridge between so many of our lives. It's the man that was the father to everybody, the coach to everybody, the person that encouraged you. And I'm like, you know what they need? They need comfort. As they stand in line at Dunkin' Donuts waiting on those munchkins, they need comfort. <laughs> it's a real thing. And so, I, so my mission became to innovate for them, the people who were our tangible example of heroes, the men in the community who supported people like me, who poured out their time and resources to provide opportunities. So Mr. Knight caught wind of the shoelace kid now working on this shoe called the Monarch. And what ended up happening is this shoe became the highest grossing product that Nike ever produced. And it was, uh, thank you. 
And um, it started because I took the small task and I, I did something special with it. And Mr. Knight came to me and was like, I heard what you did with the shoelaces. I still don't get it. Uh, <laughs> but this is, this is exactly why we started the company. Because, you know, his mission is if you have a body, you're an athlete. And everyone was an athlete. So I figured out a way to serve this athlete, the father in the community. Next slide, please. And then I had the opportunity to work on projects like the Dornbecker project, where we would create shoes and, and apparel to serve children who were in, in hospitals. Next slide, please. Um, and so this gentleman in particular, uh, Cole Johansson, was a kid who was just coming out of a surgery. He had, had a really horrific, uh, horrendous accident, and he was slowly recovering. And this project was so near and dear to my heart because here it was me, a kid who found my voice through being in a hospital as a child, not working on a project that actually contributed to saving lives for children in my same position. It was, it was completely an amazing miracle because I was able to walk into Dornbecker and see the machines that we purchased to save a life. They were able to show us the amount of emergency trauma flights that were paid for because of these shoes selling. And then when I was in grad school at Stanford, this shoe comes out. And I forgot it was being released, and I was at Nike Town the day it happened with my classmates, and we're all standing in line, and there's this huge queue, and people are recognizing me, and I'm like, what's going on? They're like, your shoe's coming out today. And I'm like, this is nuts. Uh, but it's a fascinating experience to just put yourself in a moment and be willing, because you never know when God will show up and show you exactly what he's doing in your life. Because it's easy to connect the dots backwards, but it's hard to connect the dots looking forward. But you got to be willing to move forward. Next slide, please. And then I had the good fortune of arguing with a person over sneakers at a, at a restaurant in Arizona, and I didn't realize who this person was. It's a gentleman by the name of Ninth Wonder, who's a, a music produ- Grammy Award and music producer. We're literally arguing about which Jordan is better. And I'm like, bro, I work in Jordan. You can't, like, even if I'm wrong, I'm right. <laughs> That's the stubbornness of being somewhere. And we became fast friends, and what was crazy is, you know, I was able to create this project with him at a time where, you know, he was going through a career in transition. So I was able to work on something that served a person that became a friend and that has been, you know, in my corner in certain ways throughout my journey. Next slide, please. Um, and then I was able to work on robots for Chris Paul. You know, I'm a big fan of Gundam um, and Japanese anime and manga, and Chris wanted to to have an, a visual representation of the armor of God. So what do you do when an athlete asks for that? You turn him into a robot. Uh, <laughs> and so some of the sketches were, you know, showing like the faith that comes from being someone that is in this position of authority and power, but you still want to be a servant first. Next slide, please. And then before I left Nike, I was, I was uh, the innovation director for Digital Sport, where we worked on strategies and we worked on um, partnerships for the fuel band, a device designed to help everyone reach their goal. Whether you're running a marathon or you're taking your first walk to walk a mile, we wanted to encourage and inspire you. So this became almost like a coach on your wrist. Uh, next slide, please. But one of the things that happened during that journey was that I had to make a critical career decision. You know, uh, my son at that time was around seven years old, and we started to notice a few things with him um, and his health. And because of that, you know, my wife and I started to really ask, like, is this worth it? Are we doing what God wants us to do? Are we in a position that God wants us to be in? Is this enough? Not enough meaning paycheck, not enough meaning power, but is it enough for us to show our thankfulness to what the Lord has already given us? And so we prayed, and I had to walk boldly into facing my fears and knowingly going to face opposition, um, and it tested my character. You know, I made a choice, and I didn't look back. When I resigned from the company, you know, the industry turned against me. People who were mentors and friends started to shun me and make fun of me online. I had people question my loyalty to the company. I was threatened with lawsuits. My name was drugged through the mud. Opportunities dried up because no one could believe in modern day that the golden child of this company would quit because he said God told him to. That sounds crazy. People just like, why would you give up a paycheck? 
I had one person write online, man, he should go and kill himself. How could you not want to hang out with Michael Jordan every day? I'm like, excuse me? Like, I love my wife and children and God way more than I love the jump man. He's an amazing human being, but my, my, my loyalty is to the Lord. My loyalty is not to a paycheck. So, you know, in that moment, you know, you know, and I encourage people to understand this because a lot of us in that situation have to fight that work-life balance conversation. You know, do I quit? Because if I quit, then it's not what other people do in my position. Do I take that job? Do I move to this place? Do I say that thing that can put me in jeopardy of losing my job or losing my prominence? The thing for me is I wasn't worried about losing a title because I didn't want to lose my relationship with the Lord. I didn't want to lose my opportunity to get into heaven. I'm like, yo, I can get shoes and that's great and I can meet with these people, but I don't want to be denied entrance into the kingdom. I don't want to not listen to what he's telling me. Um, So what ended up happening, next slide please, is that there was a series of opportunities that popped up. Stanford, some of my former professors from grad school had heard what I was doing, um, you know, in terms of figuring out next steps with health and technology and my career, because I was pretty much a stay-at-home dad. I was wearing, you know, sweatsuits every day, practicing my jump shot. And, and, you know, helping my wife with the daily routine um, and figuring out what God wanted me to do next. And during that time period, you know, I got in touch with a former classmate um, and her husband who became who also believers who became good friends of ours. And they were like, hey, could you come out? We want to show you this product, this thing that we're working on. And I'm like, sure. You know, God, you know, showed up at the right moment. I had another opportunity and I prayed right before signing the paperwork that if it wasn't for me, God revealed it. And lo and behold, here goes my friend Nick calling me at that moment as I'm getting ready to sign the paperwork to take a job for money, a job that simply was just a paycheck, nothing that I felt connected to and I didn't feel right in my soul. So once again, I was faced with someone telling me we can make you really wealthy or do I listen to the voice of God? Nick sends me this text. I'm like, all right, there it is, Lord, that's you. And I called Nick and I was on a plane to San Francisco from New York the next day. But the one thing that I, I encourage people to understand, next slide, please is during my moment of persecution and moment of opposition, um, this scripture really resonated, and it's Matthew 10, 19, 20, uh, NIV version. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. And so I did not take that persecution lightly. You know, it hurt deeply that people who I looked up to and respected and revered turned against me, assuming I would go to the competitor. That broke my heart in a lot of ways because I'm like, I've dedicated my life to providing value to this company since the age of 19. I've known these people. They've been with me when I got my first car, got my first apartment. And now they're some of the loudest voices against me. But I was silent because there is strength and weakness. There is strength and vulnerability because I knew that it wasn't going to be me who solved this problem. That when I stood back on top of the game, that it would be God that I give glory to. And so, you know, when you're going through your transitions, if you're thinking about work-life balance and you're kind of stuck between what is popular and what's important to you, don't worry about what to say. Understand that God will provide the voice. He will provide the instruction. Just be willing to trust him. Be willing to make those tough decisions because that's where you exercise your faith. Because faith is a muscle and you got to exercise it daily. And if not, your faith is atrophied. It stays stagnant. Faith has to be in motion in order for it to work. So put your faith in motion. Next slide, please. So for me, when I got to this company, it was an amazing experience. It was my first, you know, uh, external startup. I had started a bunch of companies within Nike, which are divisions, but never anything outside of the company. Um, As with any startup, there's the risk of failure, right? 
Um, sometimes it's communication, sometimes it's funding, sometimes it's attitude, sometimes it's product strategy. Um, for us, it was a mix of all of those things. You know, it was a lot of people from different walks of life, different experiences, and we just could never really figure out the proper way to execute. But we all did align on one thing, that we wanted to empower people to know more about what they consume, to help them with health. During this time period, you know, I was able to work with Nick, uh, who's also a believer, work with several other colleagues who are believers, and we poured into each other and said, God is using us for this moment. We don't know what, but let's just be willing to power forward and get this thing done. While I was there, once again, um, next slide, please. I met another gentleman arguing over sneakers through a good friend of mine, uh, DeVaris, who's also uh, a co-founder of my, my new company. And this gentleman was one of the general partners at Excel, where I currently work as a designer in residence. So I had no clue what he did for a living, because I'm not in the business of Googling people before I meet them. Um, I don't want to be biased towards you know, how I show up, so I just go in and just meet them as they are, um, irrespective of socioeconomic status or affiliation. I just want to know you for my own interpretation of you, not what the world has said you are. Uh, and so um, I didn't know, once again, I didn't know who the gentleman was. We're arguing over the best Jordans. As I told you earlier, even when I'm wrong, I'm right, because I worked at Jordan. So, <laughs> uh, but he became a really good friend, and he recruited me to Excel to help build out capabilities to serve people through my love and desire to, to, to use creativity as their way out. So we created a program focusing on what we call cultural alchemists, people who sit at the fringes of, of, of industry, people who don't fit neatly into a box people who don't necessarily fall within a category or a vertical. The, the technical word is a polymath. And I was a polymath. I like science and art and music. I like so many things. And everybody would tell me, you just need to pick a lane. But what if God intended me to create a lane, not to join one? But we're not telling our kids to start something new. We're telling them to fall in line and to believe what we think they're capable of. But God will rise up the mighty from the weak. And I was completely weak. And he rose me up because I was willing to believe that I'm not designed to be in a box. I'm just not designed to be in a category. I'm designed to be in the world and to serve. So when this article came out, it was fascinating. So here I am, two and a half, three years removed from this persecution. Now opportunities are flowing my way. Things are just, it's crazy because there's things I couldn't imagine. I'm traveling the world, lecturing in countries and meeting people and presidents of nations. And I'm like, I'm just a dude from the South Side that was told I had ADD. I don't even, <laughs> this is crazy. But then at game seven, next slide, please. It all kind of made sense. Because I was at game seven um, to see the Warriors, unfortunately, lose to the Cleveland Cavaliers. Or depending on which team you cheer for, you probably are happy that happened. Um, and as my wife and I were leaving the game, we literally bump into Phil Knight. Like, literally run right into him. And he sees me and he's like, Jason, oh, man, it's so good to see you. You've, you've done it. Because what I didn't mention is before I resigned from Nike, I had a conversation with him. And he told me that when I leave, to not let my work in Nike be my best work. To go out into the world and do better. And that, that's something that's magnificent. When you have a man that has created a corporation as large as Nike tell you that it's okay for you to leave, it's okay for you to grow, and it's okay for you to do better, that's, that's a blessing. So we connect, and then the gentleman right there in the white shirt, that's his grandson. Now, the funny part about Drew is that when he came to work in Jordan brand, no one had talked to him. Everyone said, oh, he's not a Jordan guy. He doesn't fit in. I love people who don't fit in because Christ didn't fit in. And so I wanted to serve him. So I say, you know what, Drew, you don't have to know about basketball. You don't have to know about streetwear culture. All you need to do is just hang out with me and I'll teach you everything you need to know to be successful. I didn't know that was Phil Knight's grandson. I had no clue. All I saw was a person who needed to be served and needed to be included. Now, people, we often look at folks for their title and what they have when we go to their LinkedIn. Sometimes the most important person in your life can be the person you look past. So never walk past a person on the street without saying hello. 
Never go into a situation looking for the person who wears the suit and looks like they're in control. Look for the person that's quiet and in the corner that needs acknowledgement because those people are the ones who could change your life. And because I poured into him, he has spoke to Mr. Knight about me. I didn't even know this was happening. So when I finally built this rapport with Mr. Knight, he had heard what I did for his grandson. And he cared for me because I care for him. And that's the thing. This, this isn't a one directional thing. We're, we're called to be believers. We're called to love unconditionally. And so now, next slide, please. We focus on, you know, this moment of going through the wilderness and how God is growing us. Right. And so our team of people, our group of people, we focus on a new narrative. Next slide, please. And that new narrative is taking the Silicon Valley and turning it into what we call the Trilicon Valley. Now, I told you I read comic books, and comic books always have alternative worlds. So in our world, the Silicon Valley is the Trilicon Valley, and it's focused on using creativity and art and inclusiveness to amplify the potential of all people. So our logo is representative of our intent. On the left, that's, the, that's us. You know, it's a solid triangle. That's us. We're impenetrable because we pour into each other. We're brutally honest with each other, but it's all in love. So the right is representative of our significant others, those lines, because as I mentioned to you, they're co-pilots, not passengers. So those lines are meant to be in motion because they're with us. They're not just, you know, we're not just carrying them. Then that blue triangle in the middle is about hope. That's what centers us. It's that understanding that God is completely capable of giving us our wildest dreams. So it's representative of the color of the sky, which we look to the sky for where our help comes from. Then above it is the cross. You know, it's a simplified cross. But everything we do is anchored in this principle of servant leadership. Next slide, please. And so this is a picture of, of a portion of the Trilicon Valley. So you have, you know, Christopher Sandiford, DeVaris Brown, Olatunde Sabomahim, myself, Nate Jones, and then Brandon Middleton. Um, and Bryce Butler is also a part of that. And what we do is use our gifts and talents to help people. That's it. There's no hidden agenda. There's no hidden agenda. We show up in EPA because we believe in the potential of people in EPA. We don't feel sorry for anyone. We feel encouraged by them because, you know, when they say necessity is the mother of invention, there's a necessity for people like myself to pour my time and talent into others who don't believe they're capable and to be present, not just to be, you know, uh, you know, you know, gift them with money, but give them your time and your attention and your love. And so Tunde has been the leader of this movement. Next slide, please. With an initiative called Street Code Academy at EPA, where he's developing these, these skill sets and these opportunities, along with DeVaris with Floodgate, where he's giving people DevOps and allowing them to get gainful employment at a time where people say you need to have technical skill. How do you develop it if you don't have the pedigree? We're trying to give you the lowest common denominator in terms of access. We're going to help you eliminate the way people can tell you no. Because the last option when you remove the no is a yes. And so we want to give people a good mindset, but also the skill set. And then lastly, next slide, please, is our company Super Heroic. Um, next slide, please. And our mission is simple. It's to encourage, enhance, and enable play for every child in the world. What I do from here going forward is not for myself. It's for the glory of God and to give our children a better example of what's possible when you're willing. So if you take the time right now to pull out your connection cards, there's a little section on there that says response to the message. And if anything I've said today has sparked that, that fire in your heart to be willing, I ask you to write down these simple four words. Next slide, please. Lord, I am willing. I am willing. I am willing. Thank you, guys.